arrest was because they wanted to use this case as a deterrent for other Palestinians to act as I did and resist occupation the way she has done. This is another example the successes of the Lavayev campaign that BDS works. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. First, we go to Tel Aviv, where we'll be joined by Gabby Lasky, the attorney for Ahed Tamimi, the 16-year-old Palestinian activist who was just denied bail and ordered to remain in jail until the end of her trial. Ahed has been in Israeli military detention for a month. She was arrested by Israeli forces during a night raid in mid-December after she and her cousin were filmed attempting to remove Israeli soldiers who are on her family's property in the village of Nabi Saleh in the occupied West Bank, after a soldier shot another cousin, 15-year-old Mohammed Fadel Tamimi, in the head, causing him serious injuries. Following Ahed's arrest, Nariman, her mother, was arrested as well and is also in military detention, facing charges of incitement due to her recording uh, of the incident on video. She was also denied bail. Another one of Ahed's cousins, 19-year-old Mohammed Bilal Tamimi, was arrested last week by Israeli soldiers in another night raid, and his detention was just extended until January 25th. Israel is continuing to conduct sweeping arrest campaigns against Palestinian children and adults, as well as killing several children already this month. Gabby Lasky joins us now from Tel Aviv. Gabby, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Hi. So can you talk about Ahed Tamimi's court hearings over the past few days and the one uh, yesterday, Wednesday, in which the judge denied the request for bail, condemning Ahed, who is 16 years old, to remain in Israeli military detention until the end of her trial. Can you lay out what happened in court? Well, yesterday, actually, the the only thing that happened was that the judge gave the decision to um, deny bail and to keep Ahed in detention until the end of her of her trial. Um, so that there was nothing special to it since uh, I wasn't surprised that that was going to be of the judge. And because there are so many other uh, minors in, in the military prisons that have not been granted bail, um, whether they have um, the same charges like I had or a little bit lesser charges or strong or charges that involved um, real violence. But uh, we have to remember that it is a military court and it's a court of occupation. Uh, the, the real task of this court is not to to um, twin that justice, but to perpetuate occupation since the court is like an organ of occupation. So we were not surprised, but, you know, um, I brought a lot of arguments to the court um, during the hearing regarding the request of the prosecution to keep Ayad in detention, and uh, some of them regarding the 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 Convention of the Rights of the Child that have that has been infringed in Ayad's case, and regarding the fact that there are two set of rules or um, in in the occupied territories, depending. On your on your nationality or in your ethnicity, and while settlers will be 
uh, brought to court in an Israeli civil court, Palestinians, for the same offense, will be brought to the military courts where the rules are different, um, much harder, the punishments are harsher, and where children are kept in detention till the, till the end of the trial for things that even grown-ups in Israel would never be um, thought to be brought to, even request to be brought to detention until the end of the trial. Uh, Gabby, can you talk uh, specifically about um, the violations of the Fourth Geneva Convention and the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which you mentioned, that are are at play not only in Ahed's case uh, specifically, but against other Palestinian children in Israeli military detention? Well, regarding the Geneva Convention, it is very clear that you cannot bring um, prisoners into prisons inside the occupiers. Uh, in the occupier's territory, and many Palestinians, and this time I in particular, she's now detained in uh, in a Sharon prison, which is inside of Israel, um, and this um, is completely illegal uh, according to according to the convention to the to the Fourth Geneva Convention. Um, regarding the the convention, the UN Convention of the Rights of the, of the Child, well, there are a lot of um, articles there that are being infringed. Some of them regarding uh, regarding the fact that um, even if a minor is being brought to in front of a court because of criminal procedures, then the last option should be to keep them in detention. Um, and here, I believe that. Uh, it wasn't so, and that there was since the beginning um, the true the true meaning of Ayat's um, arrest was because they want they wanted to use this case as a deterrence for other Palestinians to act as I did and resist occupation the way she has done. So, um, so they are infringing um, her rights or on the convention in that sense. There are um, specific. Uh, articles, Article 37, Article 40, uh, a lot of other articles that are being um, not taken into consideration. Um, and and as well, some other articles in the Israeli penal law uh, regarding youth investigations. Uh, and I want to say that also the interrogations, some of the interrogations that I had to go through were from that, were completely in in my eyes illegal in the sense that um, while interrogated I mostly kept silent and she didn't answer the 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 interrogator's questions and she was told by one of them that if she doesn't speak he will arrest members of her family and bring them to the police station uh, using, using this threat in order to try to get her to incriminate herself. And this is, of course, completely completely illegal. And regretfully, the court didn't find any of those things. Um, uh, and didn't find that these things were enough um, to, to decide that she can be granted bail, um, besides other things that were brought there. One of the things that, that I told the court was I brought them a lot of examples of settlers who um, who have been uh, committed offenses of 
really using violence against soldiers in the occupied territories. Um, and they were not kept in detention until the end of their trial. And the courts actually didn't take a lot of notice in, in, in that argument and didn't really um, make make a, a um, didn't want didn't even try to to exclude uh, Ayat's case from 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 those cases. And regretfully, the decision is that she has to be in detention until the end of her trial. We're speaking with Gabby Lasky. She's the attorney for Ahed Tamimi, the 16-year-old Palestinian uh, activist in the village of Nabi Saleh in the occupied West Bank. Uh, Gabby, how is Ahed doing physically, emotionally, and psychologically? Um, as, as we know, Israel routinely interrogates, tortures, uh, and beats children in military detention. Is there any indication that she's being abused? No, I did. I did strong, and she's and she's and she's keeping her spirits high. She hasn't been tortured or 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 beaten, but yes, as I, I said before, she was threatened that if she doesn't speak um, during her interrogation and doesn't incriminate herself, then they will arrest family members. And in the beginning of her detention, she she wasn't given warm clothes or change of clothes and, and things like that, which are also unacceptable, mainly mainly because uh, because of her age. But if if I may, I one of the things that I that I that that I really want to say regarding Knight's case is that I think that that this case has become of such an important nature. Because um, the video that, that that was shown allows each side of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to see their narrative. If the Palestinian side can see a young girl fighting uh, an armed or two armed soldiers uh, with her bare hands and and just making them leave her her house, her backyard, her land, her country, it, it has been very symbolic for, for the Palestinians to, to see that. And this is their narrative. We're occupied and we have the right to resist. And on the other hand, the Israelis have been able to, to give compliments to the soldiers that they are, that although they are there risking their lives uh, uh, for the security of the state when they are, when they are pushed and, and slapped by a Palestinian girl, they they do not lose their temper and they just go by it. And so this is like the narrative of both sides. But what happened is that while in Israel, after the, the video got viral, um, some people in Israel saw saw this this video as a humiliation. Humiliation for the soldiers, humiliation for the whole nation, and they couldn't bear it. We heard that the Minister of Education was saying that Ayn has to be kept in in detention for or, or thrown in prison for for life. You know, very educational that the Minister of Education yeah. says that. And and then there was there was uh, an outcry in the Israeli public that we can't allow that kind of behavior. And so, four days after um, after 
Only then was I arrested in the middle of the night and brought up, up from her bed at four o'clock in the morning. Right. Right. And um, so I, I believe that it was only that public outcry and that humiliation that made um, that made the, the IDF decide that they had to arrest Ahed. Um, and not only that, but during her arrest. She, the arrest was videotaped by the IDF and by the and the police, and although she's a minor, the video of her arrest was sent to the press, which is completely completely radical. It's like you know showing or trying to humiliate her. Okay, but the important thing of what's happening now is that a 16-year-old Palestinian. Um, a young woman was able to open the door to the Israeli public to see again occupation. What occupation is doing to Israelis, what occupation is doing to Palestinians and even if they are talking um, that uh, against Eid, for the first time in a very long time, Israelis have to um, have to relate to the occupation and what it's doing to the Israeli society. So, the, the case, without wanting to, the, the this case has really become uh, an important, an important uh, step or important pillar in the in in what we call the the Israeli society. Um, trying to understand how to deal with occupation and how to deal with themselves as occupying as occupiers. Finally, Gabby Lasky, um, what's the next step in the trial? Uh, how many years could Ahed face? And 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 what's the, you know you you explained a little bit at the beginning um, about the message that Israel is trying to send in, in terms of of this trial and this case in particular. Um, where where does Ahed stand uh, right now? Where does it go from here? Um, there is a, a court date. Uh, to begin her her trial on the 31st of January, um, and we're we're now in the midst of deciding what kind of trial we want. Uh, we want so I will have to go visit her and talk to her, talk to to Basim and and we will decide together what what we're going to do um, regarding how to deal with the trial. Um, and how time, how much time she can expect? Uh, we don't know. First, I believe that we will that maybe we'll be able to erase some of the um, offenses in the in in the indictment. Uh, and and what I can say, I don't know how much they we can expect, but um, what I can say is that the prosecution and even um, and even the minister of, of defense, or as the minister of education uh, has already said, they want to keep Ida in detention for or in prison for as long as possible. Um, so I can't put this in in months or in numbers. I don't know, but they they really want to keep her for a long time. So 
So we will first try to raise some of the charges against her and then and then we will see how we're going to fight back. Well, we will, of course, um, keep our listeners and readers uh, abreast of the situation as as the, as this case and the trial evolves. Uh, Gabby Lasky, thank you so much for your work and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. He's Laura Barrows-Friedman, you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. In late December, human rights activists in New York City celebrated the closure of the diamond store of Israeli billionaire and settlement profiteer Lev Levayev after 10 years of sustained protest. Activism group Adala New York, which has been at the forefront of the Levayev protests, stated in a press release that, quote, the store closure comes as Jonah Reichnitz, a former employee at Levayev's company Africa Israel USA, testified in a Manhattan court as part of a far-reaching bribery trial that in 2008, Levayev's diamond store attempted to pay off New York City police to quash Adala New York's protests outside Levayev's store. Reichnitz testified that protesters over the holidays, Valentine's Day, and other holidays at Levayev's Madison Avenue Diamond Store, quote, were a big headache for him. So Reichnitz secured from the jewelry store a further donation for the NYPD football team of $25,000 in order to, quote, make sure the problem went away. Joining us to talk about the significant victory for human rights and the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement in New York City is Patrick Connors of Adala, New York. Pat, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks, Nora. It's great to be here. So let's talk about this Lev Levayev diamond empire and why it's so significant that a group of human rights activists were able to be such a thorn in the side of Levayev companies to, to the extent that uh, Levayev tried to bribe New York City Police Department to, to quell the protests. Tell us about the Levayev companies here, including Africa, Israel and leader management and development, um, who they are, what they do, how they're involved in Israel's illegal settlement colony enterprise, as well as brutal human rights abuses in Angola. What is what is the Levayev empire? Um, Levayev groups all his companies under what he calls the Levayev group of companies. Uh, and those businesses range from construction to real estate to diamonds to other kind of different uh, exploitative businesses around the world. Um, and then focusing specifically on those involved in settlement construction first, um, Africa Israel is his flagship real estate construction company, and Africa Israel has been involved in building settlements since at least 2000, uh, all around the West Bank. Um, so Africa Israel has done a lot of the settlement construction that Leviev has been directly involved in. But he also owns a smaller company with his brother-in-law called Leader Management and Development. And Leader Management and Development uh, owns and operates the Zoom settlement, which is built on the land of the village of Jeus and some other neighboring West Bank communities. Um, so those are two of his main kind of settlement building enterprises. Additionally, he's donated to different settlement organ, at least one settlement organization and probably more 
that are involved in um, ex expropriating land from Palestinians and then take, taking it over and building settlements on them. So that's the settlement side. And then uh, just so many of the other elements of Leviev's uh, business, businesses are involved in human rights abuses and other unethical business practices, as you said, from Leviev Diamond's operations in Angola, um, where they work closely with the repressive Angolan government, uh, extracting diamonds from communities that uh, don't benefit in any way from the huge wealth that's generated uh, by the diamond industry in Angola. In fact, people are kicked off their land, kind of the way Palestinians are kicked off their land for settlement construction. They're impoverished by the diamond industry. Um, so that's uh, diamonds in Angola. And then in uh, Namibia, he's also been involved in the, the diamond industry, uh, again, exploiting workers involved in cutting and polishing diamonds. Um, most everywhere you turn, some kind of uh, exploitative business practice in, throughout different parts of his empire. Pat, can you talk about the 10 years of protests? What kinds of strategies and tactics did Adela in New York use, and why were they so effective? Well, we actually yeah, um, started the campaign uh, based on the request of Palestinian and Israeli activists um, who, along with us, recognized that um, Leviev was both involved in leading the settlement construction on Jeyus's land, where we had particular, many of us had spent time in Jeyus, and his company was also helping to build the settlement of Matityahu East on the land of Belin, which 10 years ago, you know, was just uh, starting to be built. Um, so talking with Palestinian Israeli activists, we realized that Levi was involved in settlement construction in key areas. Uh, that led us to consider the campaign, particularly because Leviev at that time was just opening his diamond store in New York City and had just made major real estate purchases in New York City, including the um, old New York Times building, uh, something called the Apthorpe Apartments, and a number of other kind of major uh, buildings in New York City. So he was... Uh, creating a major, taking a major presence in New York City where we were based and he was involved in exploitative settlement construction as well as other business practices, uh, you know, in, in Palestine and Angola. So he seemed like really uh, his business empire was something to, to focus on, a good focus for us in New York City. So uh, we started uh, looking at all the different elements of his business, uh, his different partners, um, nonprofits, governments, uh, celebrities, and really started um, both protesting at his store as a way to draw attention to uh, the human rights abuses that his companies were involved in, but also reaching out to all of those different part, uh, business partners progressively and informing them about the, what Levive's companies were doing in Palestine, Angola, and even in New York City. Uh, and gradually the momentum built as different people, uh, you know, who had some kind of uh, standards for their partnerships uh, said that we really shouldn't be working with Leviev's companies. Uh, one of the first successes was UNICEF that um, was taking small donations from Leviev, but nonetheless, uh, Leviev's PR firms were talking about them in the media. 
they back they they cut their relationships with Leviev. Said he would never t- they wouldn't take his money anymore. Uh, he was involved in um, also very indirectly providing money to or support to Oxfam America. Uh, Oxfam America could, couldn't even trace it, but again, Leviev's PR firms were touting that. Uh, eventually, Oxfam America backed away from him. Uh, same thing happened when we we contacted a lot of celebrities who were being featured wearing his diamonds. So there was kind of a snowball effect as different actors around the world, uh, either publicly or privately, distanced themselves from Leviev. And more and more um, groups around the world became involved in the campaign. Uh, Leviev had also opened his store in London. People in London were protesting. Leviev had a store in Dubai. People in Dubai also held some very small protests, but wrote letters, contacted people. Um, And eventually it reached the point where we were able to, uh, in the UK, um, as momentum built, reach out to the British government because the British government was about to move its embassy into a Leviev building in Tel Aviv. Uh, once there was a public campaign and pressure put on the British government, they backed out of that deal to move into move their embassy into uh, a Leviev building in Tel Aviv. And eventually, uh, partners around the world, the BNC, Norwegian um, civil society groups, Adela New York, and I think Who Profits reached out to the Norwegian government about the fact that... Um, the Norwegian pension fund was invested in Leviev companies. Uh, the Norwegian government eventually announced that they would no longer invest in those companies. They divested from those companies. So gradually uh, reaching out to all those different actors, momentum built, uh, different people became involved in the campaign around the world. And it became kind of known that uh, Leviev's businesses were uh, involved in unethical practices uh, albeit settlements uh, in the diamond industry, et cetera, and people began to sever ties or quietly not initiate them. What can other activism groups facing off against similar corporations profiting from Israel's ongoing colonization and occupation of Palestine, um, what can they learn from the Leviev protests? What advice do you have for activists? Yes, one one part of that that I didn't that I didn't mention in talking about uh, how we reached out and worked with people uh, around the world is that you know the protests themselves that we held at the live store were generally fun and creative and we we enjoyed putting them together uh, with um, creative parody songs of holiday carols every uh, Christmas and Hanukkah season at the Leviev store on Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, and we did little parody skits. So we had fun putting them together, and then we tried to also share that uh, also with people around the world via videos, press releases, photos of, you know, these creative protests. So that was also a key part was we... The, the creative aspect to the on-street protests uh, were fun and exciting and created interest and caught the attention sometimes of media and other people as well. And then we that the creative protests, street protests, were coupled with this kind of um, systematic look at um, the different elements of the Leviev uh, business empire around the world. 
and the different partners and associates that were most vulnerable to um, his to because of his unethical business practices and most likely to um, eventually separate themselves from him. And so, you know, we, along with many other partners around the world, tried to look systematically at those different partners to leverage our contacts and um, be in touch with them and pressure them to separate themselves. So as the, the creative street protests, the kind of systematic analysis of the business, the, um, using, uh, reaching out to different people around the world who were interested and able to help as appropriate, whether it was in Norway, whether it was in the UK, whether it was in Dubai, obviously Palestine and Israel as well. Um, those were all key elements. And again, the fact that it was the initial campaign was rooted in real needs on the ground in communities like Berlin and Jeyus and that community members there uh, initially expressed a desire for this campaign and participated uh, in the first couple of years by writing letters, by um, giving feedback on what was going on. So those were all some of the key things that I think helped to make it successful and that you know we try to think about ourselves as we work on other campaigns as well. Patrick Connors of Adala, New York. Patrick, is there anything else you want to add about um, you know, the last decade of protests against Leviathan and, and the significance for you as a member of this activism group who's been so heavily involved in these protests um, that the store has finally closed? Yeah, it, it's exciting for all of us to have been involved in you know a successful BDS campaign, um, and you know we feel some degree of satisfaction the, the achievements of the campaign um, and I think you know the first couple of years there was a lot of month after month successes that uh, kept things going but we felt we you know the the, the work is was not done and it's still not actually done um, so we did kind of persist and continue to pay attention to what was happening uh, with Leviev. Um, because as, as I said, the work was not done, uh, Leviev still, uh, in, to some degree, may be involved in settlements. The s settlements that he built still exist. He's still an Israeli business that's boycottable. Um, so the persistence is also important, I think, to help ensure long-term achievements. I think what we, you know, see as exciting here is, again, that this is another example, the successes of the Leviev campaign, that um, BDS works and is achieving successes uh, around the world, um, it, whether it's uh, the Leviev companies, Veolia, G4S, Church Divestment, artists supporting uh, the boycott, artists um, not performing in Israel. Uh, obviously, BDS is achieving successes and growing worldwide and uh, is increasingly being seen by the Israeli government as the threat that it really is because we're, we are working as civil society uh, to hold Israel accountable for its human rights abuses. Well, Patrick Connors, thank you so much uh, again. Patrick Connors of Adala, New York. Um, and what's the best way to get in touch with Adala? Uh, it's info at adalany.org. So uh, info at adalahny.org. Great. Patrick Connors, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks a lot, Nora. 
everyone, that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.